This is KJZZ, your news and information station, on air, online, and we're on your phone. I'm Tiara Vayan. Let's look now at this week's stories you don't want to miss. It's the podcast designed to catch you up on some highlights from our community. Thanks for listening for the week of January 22, 2024. State Republican lawmakers are tightening the leash on several Arizona agencies and, in some cases, seeking to abolish them altogether. From our politics desk, Cameron Sanchez reports that some Democrats believe that Republicans have weaponized the sunset review process. Republican State Senator Jake Hoffman has made headlines targeting the Arizona Commerce Authority, which drew his ire after questions were raised about the agency's practice of whining and dining business executives. But Hoffman has his sights set on more than just the ACA. In one recent legislative hearing alone, Hoffman recommended short two-year continuations for a block of nine state agencies. This is not an attack or an impugning of your guys' mission or what you guys are doing. This is good governance at work. State government agencies like the Department of Health Services or the Department of Economic Security are typically audited every 8 to 10 years as part of a sunset review. That's how the legislature reviews the purpose and function of those departments. Lawmakers must then take a vote, either to continue an agency, revise or consolidate, or terminate. Democratic Senator Catherine Miranda says she sees a pattern by Republicans like Hoffman offering short-term continuations. They're going to do everything possible to distract this administration to fight against us as Democrats until what they think until they get power. For the first time in years, Arizona has a Democratic governor, with agency and department heads appointed by and reporting to Governor Katie Hobbs. Miranda says there's a direct connection to the recently elected governor and Republicans' desire to increase scrutiny of state government. She expects that it's tied to the upcoming election, where lawmakers are up to either get reelected or to lose their seats. So you're going you're gonna to see extreme moves on and on until the results come out in 2025. Hoffman says the Democrats, like Miranda, are making an absurd conspiratorial claim. While chairing a recent Senate government committee hearing, Hoffman says he's offering shorter continuations specifically for agencies that self-audit. We want to ideally have the Auditor General, uh, you know, buy them the time, essentially, to conduct a full audit. Agencies self-audit by internally reviewing their own practices. It's a less comprehensive process than a report from the state auditor general's office, which operates independently and makes recommendations to agencies for ways to improve their operations. Hoffman said he doesn't approve of giving agencies an extension for several years without the information from a thorough independent report to work off of. But Democratic Senator Juan Mendez called the shortened continuations a waste, at least as long as auditors aren't given the resources necessary to review every government agency. When the Auditor General's calendar fills up, agencies are assigned self-audits. State auditors have other responsibilities, which aren't limited to state agencies. They also review school districts, universities, and counties. We need to guarantee that the Auditor General has the calendar space to go to give these agencies the proper reviews they are warranted. Mendez also sees a connection between last year's Committee on Director Nominations, which Hoffman chaired, and this year's new continuation recommendations. In the Dino Committee, Hoffman critiqued Hobbs, rejected several of her nominees to lead government agencies, and refused to consider several others. Hobbs eventually pulled all of her nominees from the committee and assigned them different titles. Republicans questioned the legality of the move and have filed a lawsuit against her. Mendez accused Hoffman of trying to bend the government to his will. He does like to weaponize things. So I guess this is very similar. 
to how he's treating the director nominations. Sunset reviews occur in both the Senate and the State House, where representatives are recommending agencies receive longer continuations than Hoffman suggested. He said he expects there will be a compromise. Cameron Sanchez, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In business news, experts say that for thousands of years, women were at the forefront of producing the world's beer. In history's eyes, its brewing is only recently male-dominated. Now an Arizona-based nonprofit has one goal, to help women reclaim their place. And as Jill Ryan reports, gender equality and beer have a much deeper connection than one might think. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to the first beer school of 2023. Or 2024! I'm not even used to saying 2024 yet. There we go. 2023 now. 2024. That's Rachel Benkowski. She hosts a monthly class at Bonehouse Brewing in Fountain Hills, about 40 minutes northeast of downtown Phoenix. This beer school tonight is a lot about the things that I love the most, and that's uh, ancient societies and how beer had a really uh, profound impact on the creation of civilization. Benkowski works at the brewery and is also an Egyptologist. She spoke with me after class. Women have always had a really profound part in beer and beer culture pretty much up until the Industrial Revolution. Um, so we're talking like ancient times, ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Egypt, through the Middle Ages where alewives were literally making beer for their entire communities. She says as beer became more mass-produced and lucrative, many women got kicked to the curb. Food and Wine magazine reported in 2021 that more than 58% of breweries were owned entirely by men, with 2.9% entirely women. Enter the Beer Babes family nonprofit, of which Benkowski is a co-founder. It helps women in the beer industry in the United States and Canada and just gave out its first grant in December. To me, it makes a lot of sense to continue to push women to get back into that role that we've always had. You know, just for these last 250 years or so, we haven't had it. Fundraising events for the Beer Babes family are happening all over the country. Earlier this month, they were the beneficiary of the annual Copper State Beer Festival in Mesa. Lisa Nunez is the festival's marketing director. It is definitely male-dominated, so not that we hate on males or anything like that. We love that. We love everything that they're able to bring to the community, but we also just want to lift up, you know, the women and encourage women to who might be interested in beer, but maybe think that they don't belong. It wasn't that long ago when at least one state banned women from bartending unless their father or husband owned the bar. It's something called romantic paternalism. That's Claire Cushman with the Supreme Court Historical Society. She's talking about the Gossard v. Cleary case, which in 1948 challenged a Michigan law on the grounds that it violated women's constitutional protections. The argument was that bars are dangerous places, they're not a place for women, that they are places where men, you know, get drunk and misbehave, and that to protect women, they should not be um, allowed to bartend. But in fact, the true intent behind the case was economic. At the time, the way the nation's high court evaluated the constitutionality of a gender-related case was by using a low-level test that Cushman explained as, does that law make sense? Is it rational? 
The Michigan law was upheld in a 6-3 decision, but was repealed by the state legislature in 1955, and then the Supreme Court rejected its own decision in 1976, when another beer-related case came to bat for gender equality. In Oklahoma, there was a law that said that women could buy this 3.2 beer at the age of 18, but that um, men had to wait to 21. Cushman says this case had fit into the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg's quest to get gender cases evaluated using the highest level test, like the one that race cases are evaluated on. That form of judicial review is called strict scrutiny. The reason why Craig versus Boren is so important as a Supreme Court decision is because it introduced this new concept of heightened scrutiny or intermediate scrutiny for laws that are classified on the basis of gender. Ginsburg's goal of strict scrutiny for gender-based cases has never been reached, but there are those who continue to strive for equality from their own corners. Rachel Benkowski of the Beer Babes family does it by supporting women in the beer industry. You can thank beer for civilization. Beer made the freaking world. Jill Ryan, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. Calling all wine lovers, First Press is back on February 17th at the beautiful grounds of Wrigley Mansion. Enjoy wines from Cove Mesa Vineyard, Page Spring Cellars, and Bernardus Winery. Support local public radio by purchasing your tickets now, sponsored by Clear Channel Outdoor. Tickets at firstpress.kjzz.org. In Fronteras News. Washington narrowly avoided a government shutdown this month, but lawmakers are still mulling a potential deal that would greenlight military aid for Ukraine in exchange for crackdowns on asylum at the border. In the meantime, along remote stretches of the Arizona border, officials say the system is overwhelmed. From the Fronteras desk in Tucson, Elisa Resnick has more. Nestled into the heart of the rugged Altar Valley south of Tucson, Sasabe is a tiny border crossing with just a few dozen residents. But it's been at the epicenter of a lot of different border eras. Aid worker Gail Kosarek with the Tucson Samaritans is here most weeks. The cartels got really strong during Trump because of the revolving door policy they had, where people were const- picked up and released back to Mexico, picked up, released back to Mexico. And it was this round and round and round. That revolving door is Title 42. The Trump-era public health protocol allowed border officers to turn migrants they apprehended swiftly back to Mexico without giving them a chance to ask for asylum. Hundreds were dropped off to aid-strapped Sasabe Sonora every week. Now... Oh, so many more asylum seekers. Well, we used to get the asylum seekers, but they would be down closer to Sasabe. For months, asylum seekers have been arriving at various corners of a remote, bumpy dirt road that runs along the wall for about 20 miles through mountainous terrain east of the port of entry. Paige Corridge Klein, an aid worker with no more deaths, is driving an old pickup truck into a makeshift camp set up by aid workers along the stretch. Uh, so right over here is kind of the main kitchen space and firewood and some other um, tarp structures and tents that people can um, kind of take shelter in. They're, they're not amazing, but it's a lot better than not having anything. 
It's a quiet, sunny morning when we visit, and the camp is empty. But Courage Klein says hundreds of migrants have passed through this camp. Discarded clothes, blankets, and empty boxes of energy bars sit underneath tent structures made up of wooden pallets and old billboard fabric. Red signs stuck in the dirt have sharpied arrows pointing in the direction of Sasabe and the Border Patrol Station. Korch Klein says sometimes migrants are here along this stretch in near freezing temperatures overnight. This is a place that we've often brought people to um, if we aren't able to drive them all the way to the forward operating base um, so that they at least have some food, um, some warm gear, and are more likely to be able to present themselves for asylum faster. Like in other places along Arizona's border, most people coming here now aren't trying to evade the Border Patrol. They're looking for agents so they can begin the legal process of asking for asylum in the U.S. That's a right under U.S. and international law. But it's a dynamic that Border Patrol Tucson Sector Chief Agent John Maudlin says is new for this part of the border. You know, a year ago, if we were talking about the demographics of Tucson, the Tucson sector, what we were encountered would be about 85% single adults. Now it's about 50% single adults, 50% families. Agents have encountered an average of some 2,000 people a day in this sector. That's according to the agency's most recent data. Aid workers here in Sasabe say they are helping more than 100 people every day. More, more Border Patrol agents um, will not will not stop what's happening right now. You know, we're not having a difficulty um, encountering people. The difficulty is what happens to them after we're done encountering them. That's where the system is now is now overwhelmed. He says fixing that requires more asylum officers and immigration judges to process claims and more beds to house people temporarily. The Biden administration has asked Congress to fund additional judges, asylum officers, and Border Patrol agents. But some lawmakers want more enforcement-based measures, like more border wall construction and tighter restrictions on border asylum. Aaron Reichland-Melnick with the American Immigration Council says those proposals are just more of the same failed policy. We've built higher walls, we've imposed ever greater barriers, and we've demanded that Mexico do more and more to stop migrants from getting here. And all of that has had very little impact. About the only thing we haven't tried is actually giving resources to the asylum system. Reichland Melnick says there's no silver bullet to solve a global migration crisis. But he says, as history shows, trying to force migration to a halt simply doesn't work. Alisa Resnick, KJZZ News, reporting from Sasabe. In Tribal Natural Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation, a new uranium mine has opened near the Grand Canyon. What does this mean for tribal lands? Here's Lauren Gilger with the details. The Pinion Plain mine comes in response to demand. The U.S. is trying to boost domestic production of, a, of uranium, which is needed for nuclear energy and to lead us away from dependence on fossil fuels. But the Havasupai tribe has long opposed the mine. They say it could contaminate their only source of water and damage cultural sites. It also lies within a new national monument designated in the area by President Joe Biden last year. Here to tell us more about what this means is Manvi Singh, West Coast reporter for The Guardian. Good morning, Manvi. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. So, okay, we've got uranium mining in the area that hasn't been allowed for years and that it's the fact that this is within the boundaries of this new national monument the president designated just last year. How did this mine come to be? How is it going? Um, Yeah, so this this mine has had a lot of opposition. 
Um, and when Joe Biden designated the area around the Grand Canyon last year, it did, you know, stop new mines from coming up. But because of this gold rush era mining law that still governs the way we do mining today, the monument declaration did not negate this company's claim to the mine because mines that were under development prior to the declaration were exempted from the ban. Okay. So tell us more about the concerns from the Havasupai tribe in particular. What have they been saying? How, why have they been fighting this for decades? Um, so these are their ancestral lands that were taken from them, and the mine is right up against two of their most sacred sites. And on top of that, they and environmentalists in the region are really concerned that if anything goes wrong at the mine, um, it's going to contaminate their aquifer, which is their sole source of water in a very arid region where water is scarce. Um, and then separately, the Ute Mountain Ute tribe is concerned uh, about air pollution from a nearby uh, mill facility where this uranium is going to be taken and processed. Okay. Well, are those claims verified? Like, what does the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality say? Yeah, so there's some disagreement here. Um, Energy Fuels Inc., the company that's, you know, doing this mine, um, they say that there is no scientific evidence that the aquifer is at risk. Um, and the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality says that they have reviewed years of data, including from the geological survey, and they have determined that the layers of rock between the mine and the aquifer are impermeable. Hmm. Um, so they're saying there's no risk of contamination. Hmm. You quoted one tribal member in your story, though, about this, who said that they all kind of knew this might eventually happen. Why did she say that? You know, she, uh, Carletta Toulouse, who I interviewed, um, she was a formal, former council member, and she's been fighting against this mine for years. She said, you know, they've been fighting for generations. So the generation before her was also fighting uranium in the region. And they kind of just saw this as an inevitability. Um, they fought really hard against it, but they're up against, you know, this 1872 mining law. And just really the way um, the structure around this is set up is really, it makes it really difficult for tribes to to fight, you know, these mine constructions or even have really input on how it's done. Mm. And there are sort of, there's a lot of this around that area, right? Like there are abandoned mines, tainted aquifers all over that region. Yeah. So that's where it really, you know, that's where the Havasupai are really sort of skeptical. So they're like, okay, you, you're saying this is safe. You're saying that the science backs you up here, but we've been burned before. And really like uranium mining in the 20th century has this really dark, shameful legacy of destroying indigenous communities in the Southwest. Mm. Um, you know, uranium mining um, littered the Navajo Nation with um, just abandoned mines, and it really exploited and then abandoned this generation of DNA workers and their families who now are still dealing with like this legacy of lung cancer and other illness. Um, and so there's like a lot of there's a lack of trust there. Mm. Tell us about the the global demands here, like the broader picture in terms of uranium. Uranium prices were down for years. So there was not a lot of demand. Now there is. This has to do with COP28? Um, yeah. So, I mean, in general, it has to do with this, um, you know, desire to transition away from fossil fuels 
and to address the climate crisis. Um, at COP28, um, there was an agreement the U.S. was a part of to triple nuclear energy production as a means to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So that's boosted demand. And there's this other factor, which is, um, you know, since Russia uh, invaded Ukraine, um, there's this desire to kind of move away from Russia as a source of uranium. And that's really a country that's dominated the industry. Mm. And so now the U.S. is really wanting to make more of it. Are we expecting, you think, to see more of this on the horizon, more battles like this over these kinds of mines? Because, you know, this desire for a clean energy future isn't going away. Yeah, that's that's kind of a big one. It's not just uranium, but also cobalt, copper. You know, we're really going to need these minerals in order to make that green energy transition. And really what I heard from um, the Havasupai and just environmentalists in the region is like, yes, we do want to address the climate crisis. We agree that there needs to be a transition. But in making that transition, we really don't want to like repeat the mistakes of the past. Mm -hmm. We don't want to repeat the mistakes of the fossil fuel industry or you know, we want to be consulted. We want to be part of the decision-making process and maybe reform this really outdated law. Yeah. All right. We'll leave it there. Manvi Singh, West Coast reporter for The Gov- the Guardian, joining us to talk more about this uranium mine near the Grand Canyon. Manvi, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. And now from KJZZ's original production, The Show, let's hear one perspective on the new Linda Ronstadt biopic and the singing of her songs. A lot of people have welcomed the recent news that Selena Gomez will be portraying Arizona's own Linda Ronstadt in an upcoming biopic, including singing Ronstadt's songs. Critic Robert Palo, though, has a different take. I called my friend Raushin the other day to ask what she thought about the news that Selena Gomez, one of her favorite singers, will be playing Linda Ronstadt, one of my favorite singers, in a movie about Ronstadt's life. Raushin thought this was a good idea. Selena is a singer and an actor, she pointed out. She ought to be able to portray a famous singer pretty well. Not according to a lot of Linda fans. I'd noticed a number of them carping about the casting on social media. Well, maybe not the casting so much as the fact that instead of lip-syncing to Linda Ronstadt's classic recordings, Selena Gomez will be re-recording the singer's biggest hits for the movie, which is in pre-production now. It's been done before in rock and roll movies, most recently in Rocketman, the Elton John biopic, and memorably by Sissy Spacek in Coal Miner's Daughter and Beverly D'Angelo in that movie about Patsy Cline. But these actors were not superstar singers when they played one. It was probably mostly old people complaining about this, Raushin told me. She thought they wanted the movie to be more about Linda and less about Selena. By old people, I guessed she meant me and my contemporaries, people who grew up listening to Linda Ronstadt back when she ruled the radio airwaves, when all of her albums and singles went gold, when she was the queen of rock music. Raushin referred to this as gatekeeping, something I thought sounded familiar. 
She suggested that Linda Ronstadt fans didn't want to share their singer with young people who might not appreciate her the way they did. Maybe they don't like that a lot of people will go see this movie to see Selena, and not because it's about Linda Ronstadt, Rauschen told me. I mean, that's why I'll see that movie when it comes out. Rauschen, who's a 24-year-old actor living in Manhattan, thought this was silly. She said that people her age might know of Linda Ronstadt, but probably couldn't name one of her songs. That would change, she thought, once young Selena fans went to see her playing Linda in her newest movie. Plus, she said again, Selena can actually sing. Can she? After we hung up, I listened to a couple dozen Selena songs. Maybe because I'm an old person, everything I heard sounded like pretty much every other contemporary pop song I've heard in the last 20 years. A robotic, vocodered female voice singing over a loop of mechanized hand claps. Take away your things and go. You can't take back what you said. I'd read that Linda Ronstadt has agreed that Selena Gomez should play her in the movie, which will be directed by David O. Russell of Silver Linings Playbook fame. I want that to be enough for me, a lifelong Linda fan. Linda Ronstadt approves. While I wait for the Ronstadt biopic to be made, I'll return to my new Selena Spotify playlist, hoping to hear something that doesn't sound like R2-D2 chanting to a click track. And straining for gratitude that someone will be singing Linda Ronstadt songs in a movie that will introduce her to a whole new generation. And finally, in education news. The Arizona Board of Regents was given an update Thursday on the University of Arizona's budget problems. So far, the school has slowed spending by implementing a hiring freeze and restricting travel. From our education desk, Bridget Dowd has more. Late last year, U of A announced it was facing a $240 million budget shortfall. That led to speculation that its acquisition of an online school contributed to the financial crisis. But ABOR Executive Director John Arnold says while the university's global campus has $265 million in operating costs, it's generating enough revenue to cover them. They've also realized some savings as we go through the merger process between UAGC and the University of Arizona. As you can imagine, there's a lot of duplication there. Arnold is also serving as U of A's interim financial officer. He says administrators used an outdated financial model, which caused a disconnect between the cost of operating each school and the resources that were allocated for them. He's looking for a more predictive model to use in the future. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.